0: you this afternoon to read scripture with me. I have two passages. First we will read from the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 2, the verses 17 through to Malachi 3 verse 5. And after that we will read from the first letter to the Corinthians chapter 3. Malachi 2, beginning at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So far far from Malachi, and we will now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here we read a well-known chapter on division within the church. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether... Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So far, from 1 Corinthians 3, we will now sing psalm. Congregation, our text this afternoon comes to us from our reading in Malachi chapter 3, the first verse. And we will read that again, Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you live with the expectation that Christ will return? Scripture teaches us That no one knows the day or the hour that our Lord and Savior will come again. Yet we know, at the consummation of all things, that He is coming to judge the living and the dead. But so often doesn't that day seem far off in the future to us? And as a result, Don't many of us live as though Christ's return at some future date is nothing to be all that concerned about? And perhaps there are others who are keenly aware of Christ's promise to return and deeply long for that day to come. Often such people have had difficult lives, suffering various trials and temptations, that have profoundly impacted their lives, often in a very negative way. They desperately want to be in the comforting arms of their loving Savior. They desire nothing more than to see his return, but it just doesn't seem to be coming. And after waiting a long time in anticipation of his imminent return, one can become disillusioned. Especially when we look around and we see all sorts of injustice and sin going on. Unchallenged and unaccounted for. Maybe even in the church. It reminds us of the situation that Asaph describes in Psalm 73, which we just sang. And there we can read. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. And don't we observe that, brothers and sisters? Those who seem to defy the God of heaven and get away with it. But the psalmist, he doesn't stop there. He comes to the right conclusion. The psalmist understands that in the end things will be set straight. And as we sang, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are utterly destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. But beloved, beloved, That's not the conclusion that the Israelites of Malachi's day have drawn. No, they look at all the sin and the injustice and come to the conclusion that God simply didn't care. They've become cynical and disillusioned about the Lord's coming, even questioning God himself. And although we might say that we would never do such a thing, But if we're honest, beloved, in reality, don't we at times become disillusioned about God's plan? Wondering where all of this is going, especially in a world which is increasingly immoral and opposed to the Christian faith. Therefore, I preach to you under the following theme and points. Behold, he is coming. The Lord answers the disillusioned expectations of his people about his coming. And we will see the Lord's skepticism, sorry, we will see the people's skepticism about the Lord's coming. And secondly, we will see the twofold reality of the Lord's coming. Beloved, our text this afternoon emphasizes that the Lord is coming again. Twice it uses that word, behold, The first time it draws our attention to the coming of the one who would prepare the way for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And with the second reference it announces the coming of the Messiah himself. Who would come to fulfill all his covenant promises to his people. Promises of salvation. The Israelites were well aware of those promises. That their sins would be atoned for. That righteousness and holiness would be theirs on account of the work of the coming Messiah. But in spite of this awareness, they needed to be reminded that indeed the Messiah was coming. The Lord tells his people, behold, I am coming. The words intended to combat a growing apathy and cynicism about his return in the midst of God's people. And don't we sometimes observe that same cynicism even though we live in the aftermath of the redemption secured by our Savior upon the cross? We have even more reason to be confident about the fulfillment of his covenant promises. Christ has come. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us with his death and resurrection. And he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly glory. Having received all power and authority, and there he is preparing a place for us in his kingdom, and we eagerly await his imminent return. But cynicism and apathy are still with us today. So God's words remind us also Behold, I am coming. Our reading begins with Malachi announcing to the people that they have wearied the Lord. The word translated as wearied is not often used in scripture, but the sense of the word is that the people have burdened the Lord with their words. Malachi is putting it in terms that they can understand. The people's words do not display an attitude that is faithful to the Lord. No, the Lord is grieved. And weighed down by the words, much the same way as Isaiah uses the word in Isaiah 43. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And to make matters worse, they think that everything's a-okay with the way that they talk and act. They see no reason why the Lord would be burdened by their words They think that what they're saying is true and that their words are completely justified. How have we wearied him? They question. And so Malachi needs to point it out to the people. What exactly are they saying that has the Lord so upset? Their first statement in verse 17 of our reading states, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. What they are saying is their righteous and holy God is taking pleasure in the evil that's going on all around them. Their loving and faithful covenant God didn't really mean it when he had said to his people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Essentially, they are standing in judgment of God. Yes, Lord. You have called us to live a holy and a respectable life, but if you were really so concerned about righteousness and holiness, why do you allow all this wickedness and evil to continue in our midst? It seems as though you delight in those who live in sin. And the statement's references to everyone. And initially, you might think that they're referring to the heathen nations around and among them. But if we read further in verse 3, the Lord identifies those being refined of their evil as the sons of Levi and the people of Judah and Jerusalem. That means our passage is talking about God's people. Israelites who were questioning why God would tolerate the evil and the wicked deeds of their fellow countrymen or church members. Lord, you have declared covenant curses upon those who are not faithful. Why then does it seem to please you to let such wickedness continue in our midst? But, beloved, is that the attitude? We should display when dealing with our wayward and sinful brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that how our Lord and Savior dealt with the people of Israel? That he encountered when he dwelt here on this earth in the midst of his people? No, beloved. When he encountered the adulteress. He said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Didn't he eat at the tax collector's house? Men despised by the people of the church for being traitors and extortioners. Didn't he heal the lepers and the outcasts? Men and women that no one would associate with. He had compassion on the crowds and those who had gone astray, not wanting any to perish. And so we need to ask ourselves, beloved, Is our tendency that of Christ or that of the Israelites? Sometimes we can be much like the Israelites. You know how it is when we look sideways at our fellow church member whose lifestyle has shown much weakness and sin, thinking, I'm not sure that he or she is going to make it into heavenly glory. Or worse, I can't see how God would allow such a sinner into his presence. Why doesn't God do something? I can't stand the way that this brother or that sister acts. It's shameful. It's a bad example for my children. It would be better that they weren't even here. And that the Lord would remove them from the church and from the presence of decent folk. And who hasn't encountered someone who says, oh yes... I believe in the Bible, but I refuse to go to church because of all those hypocrites. Really at the heart of this statement isn't such a person saying much the same thing. Why, God, are you allowing all this evil in your church to go unchallenged? The church your gathering's no good. The people do not reflect your holiness. And yet you seem to delight in it, not caring enough to purge the church of such evildoers. Brothers and sisters, the question of church membership should not be decided on the basis that there is sin among God's people. Because if that is the deciding factor, then none of us should be here. No, God himself calls us through the office bearers, just like he is calling your sinful neighbor. We have no right to stand in judgment of the call of our God that is fueled by our disillusioned expectations of what we think God should be doing. But that's what's going on in Israel. Given the Israelites first question, the second question should not surprise us, brothers and sisters. Such cynicism and disillusionment about God tolerating evil leads naturally to the question at the end of verse 17. Where is the God of justice? It is different from the cry of those under the altar in Revelation 6, verse 10, where they cry out, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These believers eagerly await the just judgment of God. Well, the Israelites of Malachi's time are becoming skeptical that such judgment will ever come. The people of Israel and their contempt For the evil that they observed had the audacity to question God like he needed to listen to their instructions. Come on, get on with it. Where is this God who has promised justice? But hadn't God revealed himself to be the very embodiment of justice? Listen to the words uh, that we find in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And Job rightly states, of a truth God will not do wickedly, And the Almighty will not pervert justice. And so the Lord responds with the words of our text. Behold, I send my messenger. Behold can also be translated as certainly. The messenger that would prepare the way for the coming Messiah was certainly going to come. No, the Lord was not overlooking all the evil that he saw within the church of Christ. No, he had a plan. First, his messenger would come to prepare the way. And we know him as John the Baptist, the one who came in preparation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And following his coming, our text says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the word suddenly has a sense of surprise attached to it in the Hebrew the people would be surprised when all of a sudden his plan for justice would unfold in their very midst. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be what they expected. The Lord is saying that following the first messenger, Christ would come into the very midst of his people. Malachi is drawing on the imagery we find in Ezekiel chapter 10 where the presence of the Lord had risen above the altar and departed And now he speaks with certainty that he would return to his temple. The Lord who had withdrawn from the temple where he had formerly dwelt among the Israelites before the exile would return to dwell in the midst of his people. We also heard this morning. Our text says that the one coming was the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And we should not confuse this second messenger with the first. No, the messenger of the covenant is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ coming into the world to fulfill all righteousness. This is the one that the Israelites wanted to see come in judgment. The one they desired to usher in true righteousness and justice. And our text adds emphasis. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the ultimate commander of the armies of heaven says, you may question his coming, but be assured that he is certainly coming. His coming may, but brothers and sisters, his coming may not be what you're expecting. But may come as a surprise to the cynic and to the skeptic is what verse 2 of our reading tells us, that no one will be able to stand... The one who is cynical about the Lord's promises, the most righteous member of the congregation, to the most sinful, and everybody in between, including the Israelites that thought that God needed to judge all those others who were living in depravity and sin. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? And the applied ans- implied answer, brothers and sister, is no one. So, what is our Savior's plan? And this brings us to our second point: the twofold reality of the Lord's coming. Beloved, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not going to be a passive event. It is going to have a profound impact. One of two things is going to happen according to the plan of our Savior. Either you will be refined and purified or you will be brought into judgment. No one will be able to stand. Either you will bow in reverence or you will cringe in fear. There is no middle ground, beloved. And so our reading begins to explain the details surrounding the refinement of his people at his coming. Christ is described as a refiner's fire and as fuller's soap. This imagery refers to the ancient process of refining silver. The furnace was used to burn off impurities while a form of Caustic sodas, somewhat similar to lye, was used to promote a chemical reaction that would further purify the silver of its impurities. The point is, is that our God was not oblivious to the impurities among his people. And he had every intention of cleansing those who were his. Our reading says he would begin with Levi. Levi represented the religious leadership, the priests who offered the daily sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were to set the pattern for the rest of God's people regarding a pure walk of life. But as we can read earlier in the book of Malachi, they had failed. The Lord tells the people that this is where he's going to start, ensuring a renewed priesthood. Christ the great and final high priest came to his temple into the midst of his people to offer the final sacrifice that would cleanse us of all our sin. He fulfilled the Levitical priesthood. But he does more than that. Our reading says that he will sit as a refiner, applying his work of refinement Christ begins to apply his work with the Levites as representative of his people. And we see the result. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. Malachi speaks about the former days when the Levites were faithful. We can read about such a time in Malachi chapter 2. God says, my covenant with them was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The Levites of former days had loved and honored their God. And they had led the people in righteousness. They paid attention to God's law. And presented acceptable sacrifices to their God. But with Christ's coming. An acceptable sacrifice would be made possible once again for all God's people. Because those who place their trust in Christ have a perfect sacrifice offered once for all upon the cross on their behalf. And although we are not yet fully perfected, brothers and sisters, the refining work of our Lord and Savior continues. He physically came to his temple into the midst of his people, Some. 2,000 years ago to begin his refining work. Of this work, John the Baptist, who prepared the way before him, says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Christ continues to come to his temple. 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Those who are in Christ are being purified by our Lord and Savior through His Holy Spirit. Each Sunday, again, the Holy Spirit applies the refining work of His Word in our lives. And there may be many, and there may be a great deal of refinement required, brothers and sisters, for me and for my neighbor. And that's exactly why. This is exactly where the worst of all sinners needs to be in the crucible of our Lord and Savior under the refining power of his word. His word calls us to respond in true faith and repentance displayed in fruitful living. And so, yes, there may be much sin in the lives of our fellow believers. But let us not forget that Christ is busy refining those that are his. And as 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. And so in response to the Israelites' first disillusioned expectation that God was not all that concerned about the evil in the midst of the church, Malachi says no. He is coming to refine his people. And Revelation 22, verse 7 states that reality for us as well. And behold, he is coming soon. God will judge what we have done and all our wicked deeds and acts will be consumed in his refining fire so that on the last day those who believe will be presented before his holy throne without spot or blemish cleansed of all that we have done wrong. But those who do not have the spirit of Christ dwelling in them can only expect a different outcome, beloved. They can only expect God's justice, his judgment. And so Malachi responds to the second disillusioned expectation revealed by the question, where is the God of justice? Was God ever going to bring about his justice? And the answer is yes, brothers and sisters. Our reading says, then, making a connection to the preceding verse, first Christ will come refining his people, purifying them through his word. Then the Father will come in judgment and justice will be done. Our reading says, I will draw near to you for judgment. That which is wicked will be consumed in the fire. The chaff will be burned up. Our reading says that God will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, adulterers, and those who swear falsely. These are all sins that were punishable by death in the Old Testament. And he goes on to include many areas where social social justice is concerned, citing those who oppress workmen, widows, orphans, or the sojourner. In short, all those who do not fear him. And really, congregation, isn't that the root of the problem? They do not fear God. Beloved, are you living without the fear of the Lord? Can you identify with those described in our passage engaged in all kinds of wickedness? Then you need to respond in faith to the refining work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is being extended to you through the preaching of the gospel each week. You may be the worst of all sinners, but if you put your trust In the refining work of our Savior, he promises to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. The neighbor in the pew next to you might have his doubts, but we need to believe the words of God presented by the prophet Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so, brothers and sisters, when we look around and we see so much sin, it can be easy to become disillusioned with God's plan. We can quickly become cynical about my neighbor's walk of faith and God's plan for justice. But be assured, God is indeed working out his plan Let us patiently await the refining work of our Lord and Savior because there are really only two options, beloved. Place your hope and trust in the refining work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or suffer the swift and eternal judgment of God. Everyone's work will be revealed by fire on the great day of the Lord, the one who builds on the foundation of Christ will stand the test and receive their reward. Amen.